Today's sermon text comes from John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was chief high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray that God would lead us nearer to his presence by his word. God, give us your spirit that we may understand your truth and live by it. Help me to preach as a man hiding in the cleft of the rock, declaring from that cleft the glories of Christ revealed to us. And pray that you would draw all of us in this room into the rock of Christ. To know that no matter what shaking we feel around the world, whatever strives to turn our lives upside down or press us under its weight. You are in control of it all. Help us keep our eyes on Christ, who will fill, will fulfill all his promises to us. Amen. You may have noticed that we are entering a new election cycle and the presidential campaign season is ramping up with debates. It's not a super exciting time of the year, or time of our lives, but sometimes interesting things happen along with it. Recently, a new song has been released lamenting how these rich men north of Richmond, that is the politicians and corporate lobbyists in Washington, D.C., they all seem to only be working to enrich themselves and to keep us dependent upon them. It really seems to have, this song really seems to have struck a nerve with all kinds of people around the country. If you listen to the song, you hear this passion of people who are so tired of being blamed for all the world's problems and to trust our leaders who think they know better. People in control with power are often grasping for more control, often making our lives worse off because of it. They might hand out favors to some occasionally, but it's only in order to make themselves look a little bit benevolent so they can have more control. 
And those with ideas that are out of favor with the leadership class, well, they are pushed further under their thumbs. Two headlines this week highlighted this problem. One story describes multiple pro-life protesters who were arrested, tried, and found guilty now are being sent to prison for standing outside abortion centers, praying and pleading with people not to kill their babies. Yet another story, in contrast, tells us that governments around the country are paying as an apology, millions of dollars to protesters, rioters, who were arrested a few years ago for their part in riots that destroyed cities, in looting and causing chaos and arson. They refused to disperse when they were commanded. Some, some of these people, one, one group is punished for challenging the authorities peacefully and the other is actually rewarded. It's just this blatant corruption in our leadership. Sometimes the corruption is obvious. Most of the time it's pretty subtle to the point where you've become used to it. You accept it now as ordinary part of your life. You may have forgotten that three years ago, gas prices were half of what they are now and your grocery budget was probably about half of what it is now. 30 years ago, your parents could buy a house on one income and now it takes three, four incomes to buy an even smaller house because our government is addicted to going into debt and spending money, printing money, which makes your money worthless just to pay off their political friends. If you do manage to pay off your home, just to remind you that who really owns your property, you still have to pay property taxes every year. And if you don't, then the government will take your property from you, sell it for what it's worth, pay off your $2,000 debt, and keep the rest for themselves. The corruption is all over the place. I know farmers. Let's talk about farm subsidies. It's sad. And we've managed to eke out lives underneath such corruption. But we've just grown used to it. Everywhere you go, no matter which direction you turn, it seems like you're stuck. We're just, are we just doomed to live under the thumb of benevolent tyrants all the time, think they know what's best for us? Well, as bad as this can seem at times, in our text for today in the Gospel of John, the forces of darkness conspired even for even more evil. But what we see is that despite the apparent doom, God is in control of even the wicked schemes of man to fulfill his promises in Christ. God is always working through all of it for the salvation of his people. The flow of this story is a testament to God's control over all things. It begins showing us this scene of men scheming. Man schemes in verses 45 to 50, painting this bleak picture of impossible escape. But then John gives us a little commentary in between the story to give us another perspective in verses 51 to 54, reminding us of God's control in the darkness. And the final section in verses 55 through 57 remind us of the goal of it all is Christ's fulfillment of all God's promises to purify his people. God is in control of all the wicked schemes of men, 
to fulfill his promises in Christ. So let's go back to the text and we'll read verses 45 to 50 again. Viewing man's schemes, trusting that God is in control of them. John writes for us, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Today we're jumping back into the Gospel of John, if you haven't noticed, after our annual summer break through the Psalms. And the Psalms, John is quite different, telling a narrative, quite the contrast to the Psalms. But now we're halfway through the, the Gospel of John, and we're taking a sharp turn in this section from here forward. From the very beginning of this Gospel narrative, John has been showing us, calling us to see how all of history, all of Scripture is culminating in Christ as the beginning of a new creation. John wrote at the end, we haven't gotten there yet, but he writes at the end that the reason he wrote down all the things he did, the unique way he arranged them was to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. He's written these stories to lead us out of an old world, out of an old creation, to step into a new creation with Christ. He's used pictures of feasts and institutions, marriage, things like that, to show that Jesus is their fulfillment. He cites all kinds of Old Testament scriptures and gives Jesus titles from the Old Testament to show us that Jesus is the point of it all. All these stories from the first 11 chapters of John to lead us to see Jesus is the center of it all. And he has, Jesus has displayed his power in all these things, his authority over worldly rulers, over creation, over sickness, even over life itself, promising that whoever follows him will join him in his new creation. Many people, John tells us here in verse 45, believed. They followed. They're so excited. But not all of them. There are some in leadership who want to kill him. Because they don't want to have authority over them. He has shown himself to have incredible authority. Sure, we'll share that authority with you, Jesus, but we won't submit to it. They want to cling to their own control. They want to define their own destiny. So in chapter 11, Jesus shows us that even the threats against his life do not faze him. He raised Lazarus from the dead in the first part of chapter 11 to show the extent of his power. He has power over death. He has the power of God. He is equal with God. All of these controversies, everything he's done, everything he's taught has now led to this point where the city of Jerusalem has become a death trap for him. 
to go there would mean the end of his life. But he has the power over death. And he's going to go into Jerusalem to make a way out of death for all of us. So now the story is shifting to really focus on that very battleground in Jerusalem. Jesus raised Lazarus. And then a group of people who had witnessed that event run straight to the Pharisees to report what Jesus has done and what he said and how so many more people are following him. The Pharisees call an emergency meeting with the chief priests. The chief priests are the Sadducees. These are really two different ruling parties in Jerusalem. The Sadducees control the temple. They're the priesthood at that time. The Pharisees are the scribes, the lawyers. They think they're the smart guys. They are the teachers of the people, the experts in the law. These two groups did not get along well at all. The Pharisees are more of the fundamentalists, the ones who emphasize, keep the letter of the law, do that at all costs. That's what will keep us in God's favor. That's what will keep us safe. The Sadducees were more like the progressives, more willing to kind of blur the line, straddle the line a little bit to keep the peace between everybody. But they couldn't be farther from one another. And neither of them wanted anything to do with Jesus. He didn't fit into either, either of those categories. But as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So to get rid of Jesus, they're going to work together for this moment. And they explain what the problem is in verse, verses 47 and 48. They say, what are we to do? What are we doing? They, they're admitting in the question that all the things they've done so far have been ineffective in pushing down, tempering this enthusiasm that's rising around Jesus. They've tried to shame him. They've mocked him. They've tried to make him look foolish, even threatening him and his disciples, arresting John the Baptist, make an example of some. But as these guys admit, the following just keeps growing. He keeps doing more and more signs, attracting a bigger following. So it creates a problem. Jesus is growing in more influence. More and more people are going to follow him instead of them. And even worse, the Romans are getting, might get suspicious that maybe they're leading some kind of revolution and the Romans are known for squashing revolutions. They've done it more than once. They'll kill the leadership. They'll destroy the city. The whole nation's existence is in peril if we don't get rid of Jesus. In some ways, their fears are legitimate. 600 years before, the Babylonians came. A neighboring foreign power came and took them out of Jerusalem as God's punishment for not keeping the law, for not getting rid of false prophets, for not trusting God to care for them. God brought them back. A whole generation, two generations later, God brought them back. And they've wanted to avoid that happening in their lives ever again. So they doubled down. We got to keep the law. We got to keep the law. We got to get rid of false prophets. But they've had this very tenuous hold on the land because really the Romans are still in control of everything. They've just offered, because the Jews are such a pain, a thorn in their side, they said, fine, we'll give you a little bit of control. But if you get snippy with it, you're done. We'll destroy you. 
So they're constantly fearful. They're going to lose whatever identity they've managed to obtain. They don't really care about being faithful to God, though. They don't trust God to deliver them from the Romans. They care more about their power. They trust more in their political wisdom. Look at what Caiaphas says, the chief priest. He responds to them in verses 49 and 50. First, he gets his little jab in at the Pharisees. You guys don't know anything. You think you're the experts in the law. You don't know nothing. You think keeping the law is going to rescue you. Ha! You know what's really going to solve our problem is crafty political maneuvering. So he says, and then he says, nor do you understand that it is better for you. Notice, he doesn't say better for the nation, better for the people, better for you, the council, us in power. He doesn't care about the people. All they care about is themselves. Who cares about the people? They should. They're the priesthood, right? The goal, the purpose of the priesthood is to stand before God on behalf of the people, to represent the people. But Caiaphas is no real priest. This priesthood was not the Levitical priesthood that descended from Aaron as described in the law. Those people were lost in the exile. They're gone. Caiaphas, just a politician who got in the good favor of the Romans. A Roman governor appointed him to be priest in order to straddle the line between Rome and Israel and keep the peace. He needs a plan to satisfy Rome or he'll lose his position. This is how politicians work. Even today, nothing's changed for 2,000 years Caiaphas has a plan. He says, it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. The Romans, he knows, they love to put down revolutionaries, to make an example. That's the strongest, wisest, most powerful swordsman you've got. That's the best military general you've got. Boom, dead. Look at the power of Rome. Hail Caesar. Rome will get what they want. The Sadducees and Pharisees get to keep their power. This is a great political move. The level of corruption here is astounding. Someone who's supposed to be a priest is handing over his own people to the foreigners, to the foreign power. It seems impossible to escape. Imagine if today Democrats and Republicans were all scheming together with foreign nations, foreign governments, to make it impossible to be free anywhere in the world. They control your travel. They control your business. They control your home. They control your food. They control everything. There is no such thing as freedom. There's only what we tell you is okay. But even in an international conspiracy of those levels... John wants us to see God's control of all of it in verses 51 to 54. John says, he did not say this of his own accord. Caiaphas did not. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, 
And there he stayed with the disciples. This section of scripture reminds me of the book of Esther. When you read through that, and there's all this scheming to keep down God's people. And God is not explicitly mentioned at work in the situation, but you can just see from the whole thing, God clearly has his hand in this. These wicked leaders are not in control. God is. So John enters with some commentary on what's really going on in this scheming. He explains that Caiaphas did not say these words of his own accord. Whose accord, John? The assumption is God's control. God is using Caiaphas's words to accomplish his own purposes. It's not as though Caiaphas is some kind of puppet that, that God's got his hand in his mouth making him say sinful things opposite of what Caiaphas really wants. Caiaphas really wants these things. Caiaphas genuinely means these words. And John calls them prophetic because they're also God's words. But what Caiaphas means and what God means through the same exact words are two completely different things. Caiaphas wants to make Jesus a scapegoat to the Romans. He's afraid of the Romans' wrath, so he wants to appease the Romans by offering a sacrifice to the Romans. So they'll be left alone. Instead of the Romans killing everyone, perhaps they'll just accept this sacrifice of one charismatic threat, and then they won't destroy their city. We're all sacrificing something to our gods. Caiaphas has the wrong god. But God is, the true God is always working. You remember the story from Genesis 50 when Joseph confronts his brothers and his brothers are so sorry. They think Joseph is going to kill them. And Joseph says, it's all right. What you meant for evil, God meant for good so that people might live. The same action, two different purposes, one sinful, one redemptive. God did not cause the sin, but he worked in it and through it for the salvation of many. So ironically, Caiaphas' words put into action God's law that he's going to fulfill for the salvation of the nation. Not as Caiaphas intends, but as God intended. To not just save the nation of Israel, but save what Israel was meant to become, a unified people from all nations. God is going to bring scattered people from all over, which is why you're here today. Unify them into one people. And also, ironically, while Caiaphas' actions were meant to save the nation, they actually will destroy the nation. When the Romans come just a few decades later in the next generation, and they destroy the city of Jerusalem as God's punishment for rejecting the Messiah. Peter saw all of this unfolding later after Jesus' death and resurrection in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, we read this in the call to worship. Everyone's going, what is going on here? It's chaos. And Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Jews plotting, scheming, conspiring with the Romans killing to kill Jesus happened exactly as God had predetermined. In the next chapter, Peter stands in the temple 
and confronts all of the religious leaders there. You acted in ignorance, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer through you. He thus fulfilled those promises. Again, in Acts 4, the next chapter, Peter confronts Caiaphas, the same high priest, and he gets put in jail for preaching Jesus to him. And Peter miraculously gets out of jail and says, you guys did, Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate did whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. And the result Every time Peter preached these things, God is in control. God is in control. God, from before the foundations of the earth, planned to have Jesus killed and raise him from the dead to save people from their sins. Then it says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Just as John told us would happen right here from Caiaphas' own prophecy. Not what he was expecting, where God planned to send his son to die, to save people from a wrath much greater than a Roman sword, but from the wrath of God on our sin, and to raise him from the dead in order to unify all who trust in him into one new nation, a new humanity to live in a new creation. And so according to God's plan, verse 53 says, they determined to put him to death. They made their judgment. This wasn't like, uh, hey, we determined to go at this and we'll bring him in and have a trial and see if we can get this to work out. No, they already had their trial. They already made their judgment. They declared him guilty before a trial. Unjustly, now Jesus is a dead man walking. The judgment was already made by the council, but also by God before the foundations of the earth. Just a matter of time before God's plan to execute the son would take place. Then verse 54 drops in this interesting little detail. As the priests and the Pharisees make their judgment, Jesus just walks out of town and goes up and stays in a neighboring village, hanging out with his disciples. It's kind of weird. Why throw in that detail? It's small, but it's a significant, powerful theological statement that even though it is God's plan to use Caiaphas, his declaration to sacrifice his own son, it's not going to happen in a way that makes it look like Caiaphas is in control. While God is using the council's judgment to accomplish his will, he doesn't want anyone of us to believe that they are the primary movers of God's plan. No human court can force Jesus to the cross. Jesus will accomplish God's plan according to God's timing, his predetermined time, not the predetermined judgment of the council. He wants us to see God is so much bigger than all of these problems, all of these schemes. These rulers are tiny. They have no control. The more they pursue him, the less they can find him. The more they grasp for control, the more it slips away from them. God's not panicking. It's all happening according to plan. The final section highlights it was a plan revealed from long ago, many generations ago. It's no secret. Verses 55 through 57 emphasize Christ's fulfillment of the plan written down for all of us to see. 
He says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This kind of feels like a little bit of a weird transition, almost unrelated to this section. But John is trying to use the Passover to show us the, the rest of the book that unfolds. This last week of Jesus' life is stretched out in order to show how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises and images through this very prophecy of Caiaphas. It's all set up with a little bit of a dilemma. The Passover was about to begin, we're told in verse 55. According to Deuteronomy 16, all men are supposed to come to Jerusalem to the presence of God to celebrate this feast. It's required by the law. Many of them had to come early because the law also required in order to celebrate it, you had to be ritually clean, pure, and that could take up to a week. So you go early, you go through your cleansing, you go into the pools surrounding the temple, you get clean, and you're focusing your heart on the true meaning of the Passover. And as they're doing this, word is spreading, verse 57, that there's a warrant out for Jesus' arrest. If he shows his face in Jerusalem, they have got him. It's all done. So we have this dilemma. The powerful people in the world are conspiring to kill Jesus in Jerusalem. But God's law also requires Jesus to be in Jerusalem. The people recognize this problem in verse 56, and they wonder, is he going to come or not? Of course he's going to come. He has to come. It's the Passover. Not only does he need to be obedient to the law, this is the entire reason he came to earth to become the Passover lamb. This whole storyline has been showing us how Jesus fulfills all of this whole Bible, every story, every image, every festival. And now it's culminating in the ultimate one. Remember how Jesus said, he's the light of the world. He's the one, he was the pillar of fire that guided the Israelites through the wilderness. <clears throat> he fulfilled the festival of booths. He, which God came to dwell among them in a tent, but he himself now is God dwelling with them in a human body. He's shown how he's a new Moses come to fulfill the expectation of a new Moses to lead them on a ex new exodus. And in many ways already, John has showed us how he has fulfilled the Passover in John chapter 2, it said before the Passover, the Passover was at hand and Jesus cleansed the temple. Because before the Passover celebration, you had to go throughout your house and clean out all the leaven, any bread that had leaven in it. You had to get rid of it. Symbolic of God cleaning the house, cleaning you from sin so he could live with you. Jesus did that in his own house. In John chapter 6, again, right before the Passover, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 men bread from nowhere, apparently, to teach them, I am the true bread that sustains life through this wilderness. 
But there's still one more significant primary aspect of the Passover that Jesus has not yet fulfilled. It was all about the lamb that was slaughtered to wipe its blood on the doorposts in order that the angel of death would pass by that house because the blood of the lamb covered the family that was inside. Just now, just as Caiaphas prophesied, Jesus was going to be slaughtered to cover the sins of his people, those in his care. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He didn't need to go to Jerusalem early to purify himself because he was already pure. He is the pure, spotless lamb. It's all happening according to God's plan, written down from before time, explained through history to save his people from their sins so that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Every single step of the way, every wicked plot, every evil deed, God is in control for his purposes to save his people. So what does that mean for us today as we look around and just see corruption at so many levels of society? We must first realize that this is the reality of humanity apart from Christ. We always try to make ourselves into gods. We always try to grasp control for ourselves. We always strive towards some kind of salvation from our problems, and we only make the problem worse. So don't be surprised by the corruption in our world. Expect to see it. This is what the world does apart from Christ. Its solutions are self-defeating. Remember, Caiaphas thought by getting rid of Jesus, he would save his own authority and save the nation. But in 70 AD, the Romans came and destroyed the city anyway. His own prophecy brought about his own destruction. This is true of the people plotting in our day too. Their efforts will fail. A nation cannot survive on its, our nation can't survive on its current trajectory. You can't build a nation, on, a society on lies, on political scheming, on licentiousness, greed, murdering babies, turning children into self-centered, self-mutilating, distracted and depressed zombies. This country is going to fall despite its own efforts to avoid it. But we can still know that God is in control of it all. And in order to save everyone he has planned to save. It might even be the downfall of our own society that finally leads us to a revival. Where people realize we don't have control. Our wisdom is so foolish. Our strength is an illusion. People will finally come to an end of themselves and only have Christ to look up to and cast their burdens on. It's often the hardest things in life that drive you closer to your Savior. You can remember if God has orchestrated the worst injustice in history to accomplish the world's salvation, you can be sure he's actively working in your life for your good too. To give you new creation life in his name. But that doesn't mean we're just going to sit around and huddle together in some bomb shelters waiting for all of that fallout to happen. Instead of worrying and fighting to save ourselves and start political revolutions, you're to do the next godly thing. The next ordinary thing that shows God is in control. 
Build up your church. Build up your home, your neighborhood, so that the name of Christ shines in the darkness, will shine through the fall and into the next generation that God will call upon to rebuild it. Do the next thing that puts him back in the driver's seat. Jesus knew going to Jerusalem would be the end of his life, but he did it according to God's law to fulfill God's purposes. He did it to show God is in control. Even before that, he went to the city to build up his disciples, to encourage them to stick together through the coming fall. Let God handle the scheming of those rich men. Get your own house in order, starting with yourself. Ask God, through your trouble, what would he have you learn and grow in? Not what the other person who's bothering you would do. Pick up a book, get some counseling, invite someone close to help you see Jesus on his throne. Commit to the ways God has promised to work in your life to show that he will take care of you. Commit to worship. Worship. Jesus knew Jerusalem was a death trap, but he led the disciples to worship. You too should prioritize worship. Worship in your bed, worship at your table, worship in your work, and worship weekly with God's people, even if it costs you, because it is there in the worship that you will see God is most, he is in control for your good, in control even of the wicked schemes of men to fulfill his purposes in Christ. Let's pray. God, help us to see that you are in control. You are good, worthy to be trusted. You have shown yourself over and over through the most wicked schemes to be the one working it all together for our good. You did it in Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, and you will do that for us in our own death and resurrection as well. We long to see him and to live in that new creation. Would you continue to give us a taste of that now as we worship together this day? Amen.